So we continue our exploration of ways of viewing and relating to our experience that lead to a diminishing, uh, a quietening, an ending of dukkha. You remember the word from last evening? The bumpy ride, yeah? The, the clogged up space, the difficult space, we could say. So ways of, of viewing and relating that lead to a, a diminishing of dukkha and, of course, a diminishing of the tanha, the craving, the aversion that contemporary uh, mindfulness-based approaches sort of summarizes reactivity that gives rise to dukkha, right? Do we get that as the basic equation? That's the basic algorithm, really, out of which the whole of the Dharma is coded, really, is that, is that tanha, reactivity, equals dukkha. <laughs> yeah. And we, hopefully you're really getting and deepening that, that felt experience of that, you know. <laughs> right? That tanha equals dukkha, and that the diminishing of one leads to the diminishing of the other. Because they arise and strengthen and fade in proportion to each other. Yeah? And this evening I'd like to, to speak about uh, four qualities, four orientations of the heart, of the intention, that can be powerfully beneficial in this endeavor of diminishing tanha and dukkha. Indeed, it's probably fair to say that these four qualities are the, if you like, the active ingredient in mindfulness and dharma practice, without which no beneficial effects or, or transformational change can occur. That's at least the hypothesis, all right? <laughs> and these four qualities uh, will be familiar to you. These are the qualities of metta, of basic friendliness, of appreciative joy, of compassion, and of equanimity. Yeah, and, and I'm guessing that many of you know this grouping as the Brahma Viharas. Yeah, Brahma Viharas, which sounds a bit esoteric, doesn't it? You know, and if just even a cursory knowledge of the Hindu pantheon will, or the Indian uh, religious pantheon would, would uh, uh, enable you to identify Brahma as one of the, the um, sort of gods of that pantheon. And uh, this partly points to the fact that this, this grouping of four qualities actually, as far as we know, pre-existed the Buddha <laughs> you know, uh, and had its own life in other aspects of Indian literature. But the Buddha gave it a particular practicality and a particular centrality. Brahma, so referring to, to the Indian deity, Brahma, Vihara meaning dwelling. Yeah, it's the word that's often used for a, for a monastery, a vihara. So a dwelling of Brahma. The, the Buddha said, if you want to dwell with, with Brahma, practice these. Practice these qualities. Practice pervading all of your experience with these four qualities. You know. And you know, although they have this sort of ancient lineage, it feels like, my goodness, don't we need them? Aren't they indispensable? Aren't they what we need in our, our personal, our social, our cultural, uh, our global lives and communities? You know? I love Sharon Salzberg's translation of Brahma Viharas as our best home. You know, these are our best home. Uh, and and you know, the Buddha presented them as a path of awakening. A path of awakening. These, he said, can, that's what he was meaning in, in his, his uh, endorsing of the title Brahma Viharas, I guess, was that these can take one to the most sublime, the most profound states and liberations of awakening. So I'd like just to offer some reflections on each of them this evening. Uh, and really, the, 
the sort of ground of them is this quality of metta, which is sometimes translated as loving kindness, which may be a helpful translation for you. I, I personally prefer the sense of this as a basic friendliness. Yeah. Metta is related to the word maitri, meaning friend. So a basic friendliness, a basic goodwill, a basic, if you like, warmth, relational warmth. And, you know, this is, this is indispensable in our, in our practice and in our lives. The, the, the Tibetan sage uh, Shabka, who lived in the 19th century, he said, to try to meditate without kindness is simply to inflict hardship on yourself. You know? <laughs> You know, it only takes one sitting to realize the truth of that, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, you know. I mean, we could say to try to live without kindness is simply to inflict hardship upon ourselves. And I think, I think his quotation also points to the, 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 the closeness, the, actually the non-separable nature of the relationship between metta and sati or mindfulness. You know, th- these are... These are qualities that we, we can't actually appropriately separate without harming both. You know? they're, they're integral to each other. They're distinct but integral to each other. You know? And indeed, in, in the, the sutta that you have in front of you, which we're going to have a go at chanting later in the, the last sitting of the day, if you'd like to do that, that, there is a line that says, one should sustain this recollection and the word for recollection is, in fact, the word sati. So, effectively, it's saying one should sustain this quality of mindfulness. And the, I think the implications of that are really worth taking on, aren't they? That, that, that metta, that friendliness, is a quality of mindfulness. You know? That, if you like, we could say that without friendliness, it isn't mindfulness. You know? which is worth us, those of us who are teaching this in all kinds of contexts. Really, that's important information for us, isn't it? You know, that, that uh, Kinshino drew the distinction between attention and mindfulness, attention which is universal, you know? It can be, we can be in a horrible, a cruel state of mind and be very attentive, you know? But, but mindfulness takes cultivation. You know, and what, what turns attention into mindfulness is this uh, intention of curiosity and friendliness. That's what warms it up, isn't it? You know, that's what warms it up. And, and uh, you know, th- this term, which we've also used, bhavana, which means to bring into being. It's a horticultural metaphor. It's a metaphor of cultivation. And this was really the Buddha's word for practice, was cultivation. Which I quite like, you know, because there can be that sense, well, what would it be if I had a sense that when I'm sitting down, what I'm doing is not so much meditating, but cultivating. You know, it's quite a sort of, almost an empowering way of seeing it, really. And, you know, the, the... the need for this is so obvious when we contemplate Vedana. You know, the need for cultivating matter is so obvious when we cult- contemplate Vedana because we can see that our biological tendency is not to be friendly right across the full spectrum of pleasant, unpleasant, and neutral, is it? You know, it's pretty easy to be friendly towards the pleasant because we've got a biological drive to do that. The neutral we're not so interested in, and the unpleasant, well, no thank you, you know. And this is, this is the nature of, of this practice, isn't it? Of, of stretching, of gradually expanding and making more inclusive our mindfulness and our friendliness, our willingness to befriend. I quite like the idea of seeing metta as, as much a verb as a noun. It's about befriending befriending all the different domains of our experience. Befriending, gradually learning to befriend 
the range of sensations that the body presents. Gradually learning to befriend the different moods and mental states and chitta states that present themselves. Gradually learning to befriend the thoughts and mental images that appear in the mind. And you know, gradually learning to befriend the people and the situations in which we find ourselves. This is the practice. This is the stretching of what, or the expanding of what is naturally, we could say biologically limited into being a quality, an orientation that becomes increasingly boundless. What the Buddha called boundless, appamana unconditional, we could say, cultivating a more unconditional friendliness, which often begins, when things are difficult, by being willing to tolerate, doesn't it? You know, I think, you know, spoke about this last night when he said coexistence is the sort of bottom line, you know, willing to tolerate, I'm willing to tolerate this pain in the knee, you know. It's almost like it begins with willing to tolerate willing to breathe with, because we can notice when it's a difficult situation with you know, a teenage son or with a boss at work or the turning into the road and finding it's a traffic jam, you know, that we, can, we brace up and somehow the sort of willingness to breathe with is part of a process of gradual befriending, isn't it? You know, this word allowing that we've been using a lot. You know, that's part of befriending. It's part of metta. It's part of the, the trajectory of metta. You know. Gradually, if you like, being willing to give or offer a vihara to that which has lacked one. You know, that which we've, we've pushed away or braced against or refused to tolerate. Can I, can I allow this? Can I allow the feelings about this, even if the situation feels unacceptable. Because you know, that's, that's regularly the case. You know? There are situations in our world that feel unacceptable. Can I at least practice befriending my feelings about those situations? You know? Which, of course, doesn't mean colluding, condoning, or giving up healthy psychological and interpersonal boundaries. This is important to remember around this word boundless. Yeah? That, that there are healthy boundaries that we need to be mindful of, we need to be careful of, we need to be uh, to honor. Whilst also the potential for a more boundless goodwill. But sometimes the word no is the kindest response, isn't it? Wouldn't we agree? Mm-hmm. I, I certainly know that I've often, you know, said yes when I actually should have said no, you know. <laughs> and I think that many of us, many of us have a bit of a no deficit sometimes. That actually, you know, we've, we've not actually, and that's not friendliness. You know, I think, think one of the near enemies of, of metta is uh, being nice which can be a bit of an English predicament, you know. Uh, and, you know, finding and honoring our nose is, is uh, you know, and that sense of clarity and boundary drawing can be a part of a greater goodwill, of a more integrated, a more, a goodwill that has more integrity, you know. Some, uh, someone I really respect said, you can't say yes until you can really say no, you know. Um, and in terms of inclusion, a more inclusive goodwill, that can mean sometimes keeping difficult people, difficult situations at some distance. There is such a thing as wise avoidance. You know? There is such a thing in the meta practice, which I know many of you are familiar with, of, of just imagining the difficult person further away or the NLP suggestion of imagining them in black and white. You know, if the situation at work is really with you, 
you know, in, intrusive in your imagination, just imagining it further away in black and white, you know, can be helpful so that the heart doesn't get overwhelmed, so that there can be that sense of, of well, can I at least wish well rather than wishing ill? Because that's really, you know, the reflection that can motivate our practice is really the cost of ill will. You know, the cost of ill will, the cost of chronic aversion, the cost of hatred, you know. It's immense, isn't it? Personally, socially, globally, you know. The, The reflex of ill will is understandable but it only leads to further suffering. You know? I was moved uh, by the story of Mahagosananda, who was an amazing Cambodian monk, who was described as the Gandhi of Cambodia. And Jack Cornfield tells very beautifully the story of uh, what happened after the Khmer Rouge, after the horrors that, that ravaged Cambodia, when when pretty much everybody lost someone they loved, someone they knew. And, and people would, uh, people were, you know, were in refugee camps and displaced. And, and after, after it was over, the, the, the monks who'd been banished, who'd had to flee, who'd been exiled, came back in. And, and Jack tells the story, in fact, I think he was there, of... of Witnessing Mahagosananda and the monks coming into one of the refugee camps, you know, and the people were so, uh, you know, it was so moving for them to see the monks who they hadn't seen for for so long. And as Jack puts it, you know, there you are. What do you say? What do you say in that kind of situation? What can you say when when people have such suffered such devastating loss? And he describes that what they did was they put their hands together and they chanted a verse from the Dhammapada. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by non-hatred alone is it healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. And as Jack puts it, he said, the people wept and they hugged each other because the truth they were hearing was bigger than their loss. You know, and that's part of the awe-inspiring beauty and gift of the Dhamma, isn't it? That it's bigger than our triumphs and our tragedies. You know, and the word not the the word um, non-hatred in that context means meta. It's a sort of code for meta. You know, so hatred never ceases by hatred, but by meta, by goodwill alone, is it healed. This is an ancient and eternal truth, you know. How much our world needs to hear that. The poet Kabir said, do what you do, but don't put anyone out of your heart. You know, have your boundaries, have your no, have your clarity. But know that to put someone out of your heart, to have a sense of ill will, to have a sense of hatred, to nurse that. So painful. And, you know, it's the sort of gateway to hell in a certain way, isn't it, when we commit to hatred, you know. And and not putting someone out of your heart doesn't mean you, you may not need to put them out of your life, you know. But it's, uh, these are powerful reflections that it feels like we, we need to hear again and again, don't we, as human beings, human societies. And the Buddha taught metta as a protection, a protection for the heart-mind, as an antidote to aversion and fear. You know. And his instructions on metta were actually basically sit down and radiate metta in all directions. You know. <laughs> Which, uh, beautiful, inspiring... And sometimes we need a bit more help than that. Um, and the, f- the, the practice that, that we've been doing a bit on this retreat using the phrases, in fact, was developed about a thousand years after the Buddha's 
life by, by Buddha Gosa. Uh, and, you know, helpful to have those directed thoughts that can incline our heart minds in that direction. And it's fair to say that in the tradition, it's often become rather narrowed to being just basically a concentration practice. You know? Whereas, you know, the Buddha taught it as bhavana of, of a quality of heart, an orientation of heart, a liberating quality of heart that we can cultivate. And I think that the fact that it's a thousand years after the Buddha's uh, day gives us freedom to be a bit creative about you know, how we do this practice. And I know some of you have been finding that using single words has been helpful. Just the word safe. Just the word safe can be helpful. Or just the word peaceful. Or just putting a hand on your heart. You know. Some people find you know, just imagining light can be a way of conveying a sense of, of metta. So really encouraging a sense of, of uh, uh, creativity and what works for you. And it's fair to say that the phrases can be immensely helpful, immensely helpful, immensely protective, particularly when the mind is obsessive or fearful. You know, to replace an obsessive thought pattern with metaphrases running end to end powerfully helpful and protective. In public places, you know, I, I notice on the London tube, the London underground, you know, where you can feel that people have contracted. You know, people are sort of, you know, there's a sense, there's, there's, there's often a sense, just a slight ambient sense of stress or fear. Or, uh, uh, and what it is just to practice <clears throat> wishing well, Wishing well. Very powerful. A, fr- a friend of ours calls this being a meta-sweeper. You know. <laughs> uh, uh, and you know, what a beautiful thing to go through you know, the streets of your hometown or the corridors of your school or your hospital, uh, your, your workplace. You know. Just having the sense of, you know, may you be well. May you be well. May you be safe and well. I wish you well. You know, a beautiful thing, protective. And, and that sense of in the midst of this. I, d- I wonder how you found that in the practice yesterday. I found that suggestion from Christina Feldman very helpful and helps to prevent meta from generating uh, a problem that actually led to it not being included in, in mindfulness-based cognitive therapy, where there was perceived danger of, of comparing how I feel with how I think I should be. May I be happy and free, you know? And actually that gap can feel quite painful. But, you know, particularly if we use words that are more somatic or more easeful, like safe, well, peaceful, you know, kindness, in the midst of this, <laughs> you know, in the midst of this. Very, uh, very helpful, very helpful. And the hand on the heart, you know, such a, well, behavioral, behavioral meta, behavioral meta. You know, the research shows that when we hold hands, our cortisol levels drop. You know, we're more able to be with the difficult. I, I teach mindfulness in, in, the, in the parliament in the UK, and, which is a place where there's quite a lot of fear and conflict. You know, and The most popular practice from the course is random acts of kindness, believe it or not. You know, random acts of kindness. Uh, and that's a very powerful invoking. You know, some, some of the MPs who've done the course have spoken about just how transformative it is transformative it can be to go through that place with the intention of being kind (laughs) you know so these are you know practices that change the relationship with change the relationship with the experience you know and and really are integral to mindfulness based courses aren't they really integral you know because we can see that the climate of mind within which we experience anything is profoundly influential about the nature of that experience. You know, this is how meta works in the healing of memory. 
we can sometimes have the view that a memory is some sort of discrete unit that's sort of buried that comes up. And what that doesn't take account of is, is what the Buddha called dependent arising, the very nature by which experience is fabricated moment by moment, in which the attitude or climate of mind is, is crucial, you know, is crucial. And the healing of memory through bringing it, you know, bringing thoughts, bringing mental images, bringing somatic experience into a climate of metta, into a climate of kindness, you know, profoundly, profoundly changes the experience, you know, and that's a gradual befriending. It's what we offer as therapists and mindfulness teachers, you know, that, that attitude of, of a more unconditional kindness that enables, you know, a new relationship with those thoughts, images, body sensations that actually transforms them. Because without the aversion, with, when the, the aversion is gradually unlearned and dissolved, the experience changes. Th- th- does that make sense? It's, it's so, I think, such an incredibly helpful uh, you know, offering that the Dharma makes here for us to understand how therapeutic process works. So this quality of metta, whose cultivation is gradual, benefits from patience and persistence. His, His Holiness the Dalai Lama says, practice kindness whenever possible. It's always possible. <laughs> and he also says, and, and you know, we've probably all seen him do this, he says, well, it moves me. He says, I try to greet everyone I meet like an old friend. You know, what a beautiful practice, what a beautiful embodiment he is of that. And one can sense in him, and sense maybe in ourselves as well, how uh, inseparable in a certain way, uh, metta and friendliness are from joy. How joy is what happens when a basic openness, a basic friendliness encounters something uplifting or beautiful. Do you get that sense? You know, we get the sense of how meta is this sort of openness, this sort of friendliness that, that morphs into a responsiveness to what it encounters. You know? And traditionally, in the, the, the sequence of these four, compassion comes second. But I always prefer to think of appreciative joy coming next because it's the, the quality that is about resourcing. It's a quality that's about developing capacity. It's a, a quality that's about nourishing and grounding and uplifting and, in a sense, uh, yeah, resourcing the heart to meet the delights and the difficulties. You know. Sometimes this, this quality is described as sympathetic joy, and traditionally it's, it's uh, presented as, as being about joy at the joy of another. But our experience, I think, tells us that it's much bigger than that. And I, I really appreciate this word, appre- appreciation, you know, that... that that has this sense of tuning into and attending to and, and being nourished by letting in that which is uplifting, that which is beautiful, that which is inspiring. It's been so lovely in the groups to hear some accounts of things that have inspired you or nourished you or that you're really appreciating here. You know, the beauty of nature, the, the, the beauty of this sublime image of the Buddha. The beauty of, of each other's kindness. Somebody was describing today, just standing in the dining hall and really letting that in as people were carefully sweeping and doing their yogi jobs. You know, This is beautiful. This is beautiful. And it's a practice to take in the good, isn't it? As Rick Hansen puts it, to take in the good. You know. 
because we, we know how our attention has an, a natural negative bias, doesn't it? For very good evolutionary reasons, our brains you know, evolved for survival rather than for happiness. Mm -hmm. And so, as, as Rick puts it, our attention is like Teflon for pleasant experiences and like Velcro for unpleasant ones. You know? <laughs> and, and the Buddha you know, really named the principle of all of these cultivations when he said, whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the mind. Can we feel that? Whatever the mind frequently dwells upon becomes the shape of the mind. And isn't it interesting how fMRI scanners have, have sort of showed that literally to be true in terms of the shape of the brain, you know? And this practice of, of letting ourselves be nourished involves inclining the mind, inclining the attention, inclining the heart as a deliberate choice to the quiet pleasantness of your hands in your lap to the nourishment of this in-breath and the feeling of letting go, the sensations of letting go on the out-breath, to the bird song that started up when the sun was shining today, you know, to the, well, what John Kabat-Zinn in that, that beautiful film uh, about his early work describes the little things that are not little, their life, as he puts it. Do you remember that moment? <laughs> you know, the little things that are not little but are life, and that are there to nourish us. You know, the Christian mystic, Meister Eckhart, said, if the only prayer you ever say is thank you, that will be enough. You know? uh, and you know, the, the ancient, perennial, timeless wisdom that gratitude is what restores a sense of right relationship with this experience of being human. You know? And, and that when we let that gratitude or that appreciation be an embodied gratitude and appreciation. So I'm not just writing it in my gratitude journal, but I'm really letting it in somatically, really feeling in the body the resonance, the sort of empathic resonance of beauty, of nourishment. What a difference that makes. How much, how helpful it is to have a sense of letting the good soak in or soaking in the good, like in a warm bath. You know. It enlarges the capacity of the heart. The Buddha described it like this. He says, you take a lump of rock salt, you put it in a glass of water, you try to drink it, you know, unpalatable. Put the same lump of rock salt in, well, he said put it in the River Ganges, but those of anyone who's been to the River Ganges will know that's probably not such a good idea. But put it in a, in a lake of clean water, let's put it like that. The same lump of rock in the lake of clear, clean water, try to drink the water, you know, very different. A beautiful simile for, or metaphor for this capacity of a, a, an enlarged, grateful heart, you know. The rock stands for the, the difficulty. The rock stands for that which has an unpleasant Vedana, we could say. You know, the different kinds of dukkha that, that uh, Kinchino was talking about last evening. How undernourished we can sometimes be midst the challenges of our life. You know, that we can be physically nourished, but our hearts are quite contracted. You know. What is it to make a daily commitment? to appreciate the good, to let the blessings in, you know. To have that sense that the difficulties aren't the only show in town, you know. Some of you may know the, the Dharma teacher, wonderful Dharma teacher, James Barrows at Spirit Rock, who uh, runs this fabulous course called Awakening Joy, online course called Awakening Joy. And uh, in it, he, he, uh, he interviewed his mum, who uh, in her late 80s, well, she said she'd spent a lifetime kvetching. <laughs> so sort of complaining and grumbling, as she put it. And James uh, taught her a practice in her late 80s, which she said, as she put it, ruined her life. You know? Because <laughs> she found she could no longer kvetch in the old way. And it, it was simply this, at the end of every complaint, he said, add the phrase, and my life is really very blessed. 
<laughs> you know? That's one to try. That's one to try. She was going blind as she developed that practice. And, and there's a beautiful clip of her on the Awakening Joy website just telling how transformative, transformative this was in her late 80s and early 90s. Isn't that beautiful? You know? Because at some level, each of us is faced with a choice. What story am I going to practice telling? The story of lack or the story of blessings? And everything hangs on that. You know? Everything hangs on that. Martin Luther, a uh, German uh, theologian, said, even if I knew the world... This moves me as well. <laughs> he said, even if I knew that tomorrow the world would end, still I would plant my apple tree. You know? And sometimes when things are most difficult, feel most dark, that's the time when we really need to commit to our practice of appreciative joy, to counting our blessings. And, of course, what we find is that our capacity for joy is developing, as we develop that, our capacity to be with, and this is what the Buddha's simile is pointed to, metaphor is pointed to, the salt crystal, to be with the difficult in a compassionate way is also enhanced. Can we feel how, you know, how deeply related, how, in a certain way, inseparable they are? Because they're both qualities of empathy, aren't they? You know? They're both qualities of, of opening and, and, if you like, receiving experience, letting ourselves resonate with experience. The, the Pali Canon has two words for compassion one of which is the word anukampa, which means to tremble with, to tremble with. And the other is the word karuna, which comes from the Sanskrit to do, to make, or sometimes understood as related to a word for for turning outwards. And I, I really appreciate the fact that both of those are words in the Pali Canon, because doesn't compassion have both of those dynamics to it? On the one hand, a receptive, a receiving of experience in, in, a, in a way that is present for it, is, is willing to feel, to be touched, to empathize, to be moved, for our heart to quiver, you know, and a turning outwards in response, a, a, a seeking to meet and to alleviate. And, and these two are deeply connected, aren't they? These are, these are deeply related because don't we see that it's the, the quality of our listening, it's the quality of our capacity to resonate with that actually determines the appropriateness or the skillfulness of our response. Do, do you feel that? You know those moments when... Someone has just said the right thing or just done something that just felt so quietly helpful, so supportive. Or those moments when we've done that ourselves, you know, where, where just somehow an appropriate response came through. And, and there's a Zen story that uh, uh, I think is really helpful around this. And in it, the, the Zen student asks the question, big question, he says, What's the goal of a lifetime of practice? It's a pretty important question when we've just spent six days doing this, isn't it? You know, or some, you know many years doing this. What's the goal? Uh, and the answer comes back, an appropriate response. And I love that, you know. That, that what if what this practice is, is dedicated to is developing our capacity to respond appropriately, to respond skillfully to all the myriad situations of our lives. 
you know. That, that sense that of a sort of attuned, an attuned response, both to our own difficulties and grief. You know, in a, in a certain way, what we're practicing as we're sitting and walking is cultivating appropriate response. You know, Jaya was so helpfully describing this morning the, the responses to the hindrances, you know, appropriate responses, you know, and also in our relations with each other. And of course, um, there's a sort of spontaneity to that. If I go around looking for my next person who I'm going to be compassionate to, that's a bit clunky, isn't it? You know, there's a sort of sp- spont- spontaneous sort of intelligence, it seems like, that the heart has when we're really present, when we're really present for something. You know? I love those statues of, of Kuan Yin, you know, the, the bodhisattva of compassion, whose name means the one who listens. There's a pointer, the one who listens. The Bodhisattva of compassion, the one who listens. And in some of the statues, she has a thousand hands and arms. And each of the hands holds a different implement that's an appropriate response. For some, it's like a, 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 a vase of ointment to soothe, or a willow branch to bless. But in some of the hands, there's an axe or a flaming sword, you know. And we get a sense, well, compassion takes many different, you know, appropriate responses are, are, are you know, probably infinite because they're attuned when they're appropriate, you know. And, and <coughs> you know, the, the political activism that I know some of you are involved in or contemplating, you know, that, you know, well... You know, th- this is, this is. Uh, w- we need to listen deeply to the situations in all levels, don't we? And 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 sense what are appropriate responses. And certainly, as a therapist or a mindfulness teacher, that's that's the name of the game, isn't it? Really deep listening and letting the responses arise from that. I know as a mindfulness teacher, particularly in the inquiry process, it can be, you know, uh, one can be a little bit transfixed with, you know, what am I going to say? What's going to be the right thing to do? How do I... Anybody else get that? I hope it's not just me, you know? Uh, and what is it to really trust listening? Really trust the sort of embodied presence where... You know, we're feeling our feet, we're feeling our seat, and we're getting out of the way, if you like, and letting our being listen and, and resonate with. You know, and letting the response arise from that. Letting the response from rise, arise from that. I think I did this once before, and I can't remember if it was with this bell. But, you know... Often it feels a bit like this, you know, when, when I'm full of my agendas of how things should go, you know, or what I should say next, or what's the thing that the manual says I should do, you know, <laughs> and, and I'm there and somebody's speaking and, you know, that was meant to make a bit more of a clunk than it did. But do, do you get the principle of how full our hearts can be? How full our hearts can be in a way that means that we're not really resonating. We're not really present for what this person is saying. You know? And what it is to trust, what it is to trust, now we won't be able to get it out. Uh, uh, oh, there, thank goodness. Uh, you know, what it is really to trust our capacity and to develop and to cultivate our capacity to resonate with the joys and with the sorrows. as a way of cultivating our capacity for appropriate response. And of course, you know, what obstructs the bell, what fills the bell so it doesn't you know, ring, is, is the reactivity, the understandable, totally understandable reactivity that shows our limbic systems are working. Great, you know. And, you know, the reactivity that has my agendas, my fix-it mind that comes in, you know. Uh, all the ways in which I can 
sort of contract and uh, also get afraid in the face of suffering because you know compassion is what happens when metta encounters suffering joy is what happens when it encounters delight but compassion is what happens when metta encounters suffering and we can be afraid of that you know we can be afraid of that and don't we notice that when we're really listening and responding, there is something uplifting? <laughs> that moments of compassion are moments of connection. Don't you feel that? You know, moments of connection where something is seen or something is honored or something is acknowledged. You know, Pema Chodron compares our hearts to being like sea anemones, I never quite say that word right, but sea anemones, you know, those soft things that are so sort of sensitive, it seems like, and something comes near, they just go, you know, they contract, don't they? And our hearts so easily do that, don't they, in the face of pain, or in the face of the fear of pain. (laughs) You know, the fear of pain that stops me really listening, that stops me really being present, you know. And such an irony, isn't it? Because although that's a protective gesture when the sea anemone does that, the greater pain is the isolation, is the feeling separate. Don't we feel that in our hearts? You know, that our most painful moments are often ones when we feel most alone and most separate, you know. And and it does seem that... uh, you know, integral to a sense of compassion is a sense of what we share. What, what Kristen Neff calls our common humanity. Because you know? part of the reflex that contracts, that tightens the body, that gets into my fixed agenda, that gets into... Uh, well, that gets into separating, creating self other distinctions, you know, the selfing and the othering, which are two aspects of the same process, aren't they? When I'm getting into a, you know, a selfing mode where there's a sense of, of, you know, me as separate, I create the other as object, you know? And it does seem like there's such a deep tendency for us to do this, you know, in our workplaces where we talk about, you know, maybe the management or the staff or, you know, the in-groups and the out-groups. Even on retreat, we can sometimes, some of you have spoken about, you know, looking and seeing everyone else with their eyes closed, looking peaceful and thinking, oh, it's just me who can't find my breath, you know, who's (laughs) struggling with this. You know, it seems like it's just almost part, part of the spasm of reactivity, part of the, 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 almost systemic closure that craving and aversion in, respond, in reaction to pleasant and unpleasant Vedana involves selfing and othering and a sense of being separate. You know? And I love Ajahn Sajito's practice of just like me. You know, so, and as you look around the room just now, just, you might even just want to do that and just have a sense of, oh, just like me. You know, our, our stories different, you know, but uh, our quality of our experience and our vulnerability is the same. You know, this is not about denying difference and, and, and diversity, but honoring the common humanity. You know, I've been, been trying to do it when I hear sirens, you know, just, oh, just like me, you know. It's one to do as we watch the news. That can be a challenge. You know? But the writer James Baldwin said, and this is sometimes true, you know, that an enemy is someone whose story we've not yet heard. And I loved, uh, loved the words of President Obama when he said, justice grows out of the recognition of ourselves in each other that my liberty depends on you being free too. 
And of course, Kinchana mentioned this, we can other parts of ourselves, parts of our bodies, thoughts, moods, memories, you know. And, and that the healing that is self-compassion is, is part of, again, uh, reclaiming and again offering a compassionate vihara to my painful knee or that fear of, uh, you know, some difficult event or that painful memory. You know, that's, that's part of the, the practice. And, and of course, our, our hearts close in self-protection. But, in a sense, what we're cultivating is the power of intention not to be governed by our reactions. Not to be governed by the craving and aversion. To cultivate, do you remember that passage from Viktor Frankl where he described it as the last of the human freedoms? The freedom to choose our attitude in any set of circumstances. You know? and in a very real way, that's what we're cultivating here, isn't it? You know, how to, to bring uh, compassionate, caring presence and uh, inquiry into the places of difficulty, into the places of reactivity. And, of course, what that does is uh, in quietening the reactivity the Vedana has a chance to quieten. Do you remember that, that quite crucial piece that says, okay, dukkha equals tanha equals Vedana, we could say, or dukkha to the power of N <laughs> equals tanha to the power of N equals Vedana to the power of N. Do you remember that? The sense that we had that, you know, the, the more I hate being in the traffic jam, the more unpleasant it becomes. Yeah? The more there's that reactive and the more I suffer. And the, the diminishing of that, the cultivating of a compassionate non-reactivity is you know, what the Buddha at least means by equanimity, the, the fourth of these qualities. An even-mindedness that is not so disturbed by the dance, the changing dance of Vedana. The Buddha described it as faring evenly midst the uneven. <laughs> and and uh, one, the two words for this, upeka, means to, to overlook, to have a sense of, of, if you like, big view, longer view. Uh, and, and also one of the words means to, to stand in the middle, to stand there in the middle. And what do we stand in the middle of? Well, the Buddha spoke of eight worldly conditions that, as he puts it, spin the world. The conditions of gain and loss, of praise and blame, of what's sometimes translated as fame and disrepute, or we could think of good reputation and less good reputation, uh, and pleasure and pain. Uh, anyone not get these in their lives? You know? And to recognize these also as part of our common experience. No one is exempt. No one is exempt from these eight conditions. Certainly as a, a therapist or a mindfulness teacher, a social worker, a nurse, a parent, a colleague, a friend. You know, we, we experience all of these conditions, don't we? You know? And the cultivating of the equanimity is the cultivating of the capacity to be present with an open heart, but also with that sense that this is changing. This is changing. That if I release the clinging, if I release the craving, if I release the grip, I allow the experience to change. I allow a freedom to come in because it's the clinging that obstructs. And, you know, this is what we practice on retreat, isn't it? Because uh, we can see how just sitting and walking, nothing more than that, brings us to 
you know, a very wide range of Vedana, doesn't it? <laughs> you know? And this, of course, is why retreat centers are not spas. You know? I mean, you know, spas have their place. But in a certain way, you know, the schedule and the early start and the communal living and the, the, the things that we sort of can rub up against on retreat are here for a reason. You know, because they give us the chance to notice what happens both when I get into reacting and, and struggling with them and also when I cultivate a compassionate equanimity in the middle of them. We notice how our dukkha levels you know, rise and fall, don't they? You know? And this is such, such precious learning that we're doing here because it's like universally transferable isn't it? We have the opportunity to see how reactivity builds and thickens and solidifies and obstructs our experience, entangles us, deepens the dukkha, you know, makes it more unpleasant. And how mindfulness and metta and appreciation and kindness and compassion and equanimity ease and dissolve and open and release. Can you, can you feel that? You know, we see this happening. You know, the, the fabricating and the, the thickening and the intensification of the difficulty and then the diminishing of it. And it goes in cycles, doesn't it? Like sort of expansion and contraction. And the question you know, to ask is, well, what gives rise to this? Can I really see that when, it's, when I'm feeding the craving or when I'm feeding the, the resistance, I'm feeding the dukkha? You know? When I'm cultivating the kindness, when I'm cultivating the compassion, when I'm cultivating the appreciation, that's what quietens the dukkha. Yeah? It's, the Buddha uses these contrasts of fabricating and constructing and unfabricating, of binding and unbinding, you know, of entangling and of liberating. You know? And there's no bottom to the depth of this. Equanimity appears last in all the, li- the lists in which it appears in the Buddhist teaching, which points, I think, to its you know, profundity. This is the quality that is said to be the closest, if you like, psychological quality to, the, to Nibbana. And, and to bring this into our mindfulness training, this is what we're cultivating, compassionate equanimity. And we see that we need both, don't we? That, that in a certain way, all the Brahma-viharas need and support each other. That, that equanimity is needed to support friendliness and joy and compassion, which without equanimity turn into what the tradition calls their near and their far enemies. You know, what happens when without equanimity I'm practicing friendliness it easily turns into clinging, doesn't it? Or it easily turns into being nice, you know? Or it easily turns into a sort of a, a, an ill will, which is its far enemy quality, you know? How joy, without equanimity, joy can easily turn into intoxication. Some of you have noticed this which is not morally wrong, but we can feel how actually it is quite agitating. Do you notice, do you notice that? You know, the sort of euphoria that is just a bit bouncy and often very being fed by lots of thought. What it is just to be able to open to the joy with a sense of equanimity, where I can really appreciate and embody and ground, if you like, and integrate the sense of joy the sense of ease, the sense of pleasantness. So much more sustainable. Also, you know, helps prevent it from turning into the far enemy of joy, which is envy. Can you feel the truth of that? You know, where somebody else's joy, in fact, there's a contraction into self and other because of a reactivity to the Vedana of their joy. Does, does that make sense? Can you feel this? It's, it's really helpful to have these sense of what are the near and the far states that, that these states, that these, these four qualities easily slip into. Compassion, of course, so 
can slip into, without equanimity, into despair. You know, can slip into despair, can slip into pity when it's me sort of feeling sorry for you, you know. And can even, as, as we've quite tragically in the UK seen in, in our health system sometimes, it can, compassion can turn into cruelty when nursing staff are just overloaded, are just overworked, are just exhausted. Uh, and when an orientation to equanimity isn't something that's being supported by the system. You know, we need both. We need both. The compassion and the equanimity. And we can hear in the equanimity, there's a certain coolness. Just like there are phrases for metta, there are phrases for equanimity. I care deeply for you, but I cannot control your happiness or unhappiness. I cannot keep you from suffering. No matter how I wish things to be otherwise, they are as they are. And this too will pass. Can you, can you feel the coolness of that? The coolness of that, but also there's a, there's a, there's a freedom, there's a resourcing there. Do you, do you feel that? You know, that actually releases the, the fix-it mind into actually being able to stay present rather than being attached to my agenda as to what should happen. You know? so, so this equanimity that guards against reactivity and burnout that helps to build a sense of resilience that protects compassion, that protects compassion. And we can see that equanimity needs compassion and friendliness and joy to keep it connected to the heart. Because it too has near enemies, and you can you either know or can sense what those are. You know, they're all the different flavors of indifference. Denial, numbness, dissociation, privileged distance. Yeah? Can you feel that? You know, it's easy to, to assume that I'm equanimous about somebody's suffering because I'm not feeling too agitated by it. And I certainly know I can look in and find, oh, it's because my heart's not actually feeling it. <laughs> you know? And this practice inv- asks us to have both, uh, have what Thich Nhat Hanh says, both a very cool head and a very warm heart. A very cool head and a very warm heart. And this is, this is what is asked of us as uh, therapists, as mindfulness teachers, as parents, as anybody who relates to anyone. <laughs> you know, to, and this is the awesome opportunity of this practice is to give us both the understanding and the support to cultivate the very cool head and the very cool heart that open up the potential of what it is to be a human being. To be a human being. So, So in a very real way we could say that these, these four Brahma-Viharas, these four beautiful qualities, they're sort of the crown jewels of the Dharma. I'm just realizing that may be quite a British metaphor. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. You get what I mean. <laughs> yeah. they, they really point to what's possible for the human heart. These four qualities, and do you sense how they support each other, how they work as a sort of dynamic and supportive heart, really, that holds us, you know, that can hold and support us through all the experiences of this life. The Brahma Viharas can hold it all when we're really practicing them, when we're really orienting to them, when we're really cultivating them in our lives. The 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows that the Taoists say are involved in being a human being. These four qualities are all both indispensable to and in a certain way implicit within mindfulness. You know, they're, they're implicit within the mindfulness that you're teaching, that you're practicing. You know. And of course, we need great patience and compassion 
with our moments of reactivity. We need compassion for our lack of compassion and equanimity with our lack of equanimity, you know, because we're on the path, you know. As we practice, though, as we walk this path of cultivation, we may discover that a steadiness and a capacity for empathy and tenderness for life, a tenderness for life, gradually becomes increasingly available, increasingly reliable, increasingly trustworthy as an appropriate response to all the different situations and encounters of our lives. We discover that contentment and freedom don't ultimately depend on the circumstances of our lives, but on our relationship with those circumstances, and perhaps above all, on what we're cultivating in our hearts. And we discover that it's possible to be in the middle of this life as it is, with a heart that's increasingly loving and increasingly free. So thank you for your attention. Let's just take a few moments to sit together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.